For the last couple, three weeks, we have been looking at Isaiah chapter 32 and 33. And I told you a few weeks ago that I had tried to skip this and God wouldn't let me. And I told you then that it was looking like it was going to be a couple, three weeks we were going to be here. And that's exactly where it's been. We are in our third week with the chapters 32 and 33 in Isaiah. And I believe that the Lord is going to allow me to move on after this Sunday. But this week, in chapter 33 specifically, I want to read to you the very first verse. Woe to you, O destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, O traitor, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. Hear that. This one that's being talked to is a destroyer who hasn't yet been destroyed, but it says when you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. And scholars are not 100% sure because Isaiah didn't specifically mention who this verse was about, but the majority of scholars believe that this was King Sennacherib who was the king of Assyria during the time of King Hezekiah, uh, Hezekiah's reign in Judah. Isaiah prophesied this before any of that stuff happened. But scholars point to this time in Israel's history, in Judah's history, thinking that this prophecy in chapter 33 is talking specifically about that time frame. Now, to refresh us about what this is, um, the king uh, of Assyria, King Sennacherib, had literally started taking over the world. Kind of like ISIS today. Literally gobbling up city after city, encroaching on territory, taking more and more and more and more of the Middle East, and literally everyone in any sense of power anywhere Egypt, Judah, Jerusalem, Lebanon, Syria, all of them, they were all worried. Edom, Moab, they were watching what was happening with Assyria as they were literally coming across like locusts, devouring and taking and destroying. And so it says in the Word of God, and I'm not going to point us to this, you can go back and read it later. But it says in the word of God that King Hezekiah literally goes to Sennacherib and says, I'll do anything. I don't want you to destroy my kingdom or take over my territory. So what do I need to pay? And Sennacherib says to him, I want this much silver and this much gold. And the word of God tells us that Hezekiah literally went to his personal treasury as the king and he went to the treasury of the temple of God and he took all of the silver and all of the gold and it still wasn't enough to meet the need that Sennacherib was demanding as payment to keep him from attacking and destroying Jerusalem and Judah and Judea. And so he literally, it says in the word of God, King King Hezekiah, literally had the gold stripped off the doors of the temple. So he literally emptied the coffers of Judea 
and gave it to King Sennacherib. And you know what King Sennacherib did? He came and surrounded Jerusalem with a 180,000 member army and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, violating the contract that he had made with King Hezekiah. So, Isaiah prophesying in verse 1 of chapter 33 saying, You destroyer, you betrayer, when you stop destroying and when you stop betraying, you yourself will be destroyed and you yourself will be be betrayed. Now, think about this story, those of you who are familiar with it. What happened? Sennacherib, the king, sent his vizier, basically, the Rashkala, whatever his name was, I can't remember the word. He came with a couple of other guys who were leaders in Sennacherib's government, and they came to the, 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 the road of the aqueduct right by the, the washerman's pool, if you remember that story, and they started announcing to the people that God had told King Sennacherib to come and destroy and take. And King Hezekiah went before, the, before God, tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and wept and said, God, what do we do? And God said, you just watch. I've got your back. Well, these guys that came from Assyria, they were literally there. One was making this announcement. He's the, he's the guy who's in charge, and he's making the announcement. But while he's there, there's another guy who's collect, who was the collector of the bribe, the collector of the money. And there was another guy there, a general, whose job it was was to assess all the towers. They, it literally says later on in this chapter, he was the counter of the towers. And he, what he was doing, he was doing a military, a strategic assessment of the city's, and the city's forces. Not forces, defenses. Seeing where the weaknesses were. So that they could come later and destroy everything. So while King Sennacherib's guys were saying, give us the money, we won't destroy you. And the other guy saying, God has told us to destroy you. And the other guy's checking out how they can defeat Jerusalem. God says, fear not. I got you back. And we're going to take care of this. And the story goes, as you read it, that in one night, the angel of death visited the army of King Sennacherib and 180,000 people were left dead. Not the entire army. It was like they woke up and the guy on either side of them was dead. And so Sennacherib goes, whoa. And he pulls back his army and goes back to Assyria. And literally, the next day after these people have left, the people of Israel go, oh my word. The army's gone and look at all the dead bodies and they left everything. And it literally says that the Israel, the Judahites, the Jerusalemites go out among the dead bodies and they pull all the valuables, the gold and the silver and jewels and anything that was of value and bring it back into the city. And later on, we can read in King Hezekiah's story when envoys from Babylon come, King Hezekiah brings these envoys into Babylon to show him how rich he is and the coffers of the temple. Well, where did all that stuff come from? That was the loot, the booty that came from King Sennacherib's army that had died at the hand of God. 
And so there's the destroyer being destroyed. But there's this word about betrayer being betrayed. What is that? Well, if you look at Sennacherib's history, it says in the word of God that Sennacherib left that area and went back to Assyria. And when he went into the temple in his Syria, his sons came and killed him. So the betrayer was betrayed. So this is what we're looking at here. God himself saying, you think you're something and you're nothing. And you think you've got my people over a barrel, but I prove to you, I am greater than you, I am stronger than you, and you will not mess with my people. End of discussion. Now we can call that a sermon and go home. But the reality is, that's not the message God wants us to hear this morning. What God wants us to hear, well, before I do that, I have to give honor where honor is due. Mark Copeland is a minister, a pastor in Orlando, Florida, and his website, www.executableoutlines.com, he has over 1,700 sermons that he has placed on there that he's written and, pre- and, pre- and presented himself, and he said they're for free for anybody. You can download them, use them for Bible studies, you can download them, use them for sermons, you can use them as a resource for your sermon, whatever you want. And he said, if you ever come to Orlando, come and see me. And this is a man of God who's willing to share his stuff so that the rest of us can be blessed. And honestly, just about everything he said in this sermon was stuff I was thinking about saying to you, but he said it much more eloquently. And so I was like, why should I try to reinvent the wheel? So for one of the few times in my 13 years of pastoral service, I'm actually using somebody else's sermon, but oh my word, this is from the mouth of God as far as I'm concerned. Now... This guy does something I hate to do, and he has a gazillion verses of scripture that he references. And so rather than having you turn to 70 million different verses of, ref- of scripture to save time, it's on the screen. Take your photo shots of it. I'm just going to be passing over most of them. We will stop for one or two. So in Isaiah chapter 33 these verses are the ones that God pointed me to. But you, need to, you needed to hear that story about King Sennacherib before you could understand any of this. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times. A rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. And when I read that, verse 6 especially, when I read that, God himself will be the sure foundation for your times. I thought, wow, how appropriate. The Sunday before the election. God is my foundation for my time. Well, let's see what this has to say. These people were living in a very unstable time. I mean, you just heard their world was crashing. Their leaders were in desperation. They were willing to do and try anything, literally depleting their, their whole amount, all of their money, all of their riches, just trying to stave off this enemy that was literally... At their, at their doors, ready to destroy them. And today, we face 
very similar things. Not a, a destroyer that's coming to our doors to take over our, our, our finances or to take over our kingdom. But the reality is every single age, Job chapter 14 says this, every single age faces problems. Sickness, death, natural disasters, threats of nuclear holocaust, environmental pollution, climate change, infl inflation, recession, unemployment, the crisis of AIDS, the crisis of Ziva, I mean, uh, what was the one with the mosquitoes? Zika, the Zika virus, cancer, heart disease, road rage, drive-by shootings. In our community, we face the issue of sub-zero weather and homelessness. And all of these things that are going on in the world have an effect on people to bring about anxiety and fear. Some people react with depression. You know, our age has been described as the age of anxiety or the age of neurosis. And unfortunately, even Christians get affected by anxiety and fear. Something I'm throwing in here that he didn't put. Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. The first part of that is be anxious for nothing. That's a command spoken by the, by the, the Apostle Paul, but it was from the Holy Spirit of God to you. Be anxious for nothing. When you fear or have anxiety, bring it to God in prayer, petition, and, 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 and thanksgiving. And it promises that a peace of God will settle in on you. That is beyond any understanding. And it, that peace will guard your heart. What is it guarding you from? It's guarding you from anxiety and fear. Even Christians struggle with this. Sometimes, some Christians, nobody in the room of course, Murmur and complain. Sometimes Christians walk around in a state of joylessness because they've allowed the fear and the anxiety to rob them of their joy. But there are those of us Christians who can walk around undisturbed by these things that outside influence, the things that would normally in a regular human being cause fear and anxiety, there are many Christians who seem unaffected or immune to it, or there's a, a shield about them that keeps it from washing up on them and staining them in any way. Even though they experience exactly the same things that devastate others. Financial crises, diseases, uncertainties. How many of you people have prayed for something and not had it answered the way you thought it should be answered? How many of you people have had somebody you've been praying for, praying for, praying for, and they die on you? And how do you deal with that? There are those of us who walk in faith with our Lord, and we literally seem like it doesn't affect us at all. Somehow they still walk in great joy and peace. And the question that we as Christians should look at is say, why is there a difference among some Christians? Why, is there some source of strength that some of them have found but others haven't? 
Is there some, some magical scripture verse that they have memorized and hold into their world that now they can walk like that? Why some and not others? Well, this verse, chapter 33, verse 6, for me, when I read it this week, whew, I've heard it before. This is not new stuff. This is Christianity 101 stuff. But sometimes when the snake crosses your path and the blinding fear roars up and you just go ah! and have no control, sometimes God needs to, as your loving father, grab you by the arm, pull you out of your, your screaming fit and run, stop you, look you in the eye and say, stop, it's okay, you're safe now. What does it say? He will be the sure foundation for your times. A store, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. Let's first look at wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are part of this foundation. If you look in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 through 22, there's a whole long list, and we don't have time this morning to, to look at it. And then in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, there is more discussion about wisdom and knowledge helping us to face life. These wisdom and knowledge guides us and protects us from the pitfalls of life. It provides us comfort and confidence during times of turmoil. This wisdom and knowledge... In James chapter 1, and I do want to look at that one. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 says. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Hear that? If you don't have what you need, ask for it. And God will give it to you generously. And he's not going to say, well, you should have had this by now. He will give it, to any, to, he will give it generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given. And when the person asks, they must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. The person should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable. See, if you lack wisdom, you should come to God. And you should say, I don't got it, God. I know I should. It's been 40 years. I should, but I don't. So can you give me some? And the answer is yes. And you have to believe that he's going to. Because if you don't, then all you're doing is walk around and go, I, I asked him, but I'm not sure that I got it. Oh, my goodness, I don't know. And then he says, what is it? You're useless. You're a waste of breath almost. Because here you've asked and he's giving it and you're like, I don't know if I got it. But it's not just wisdom and knowledge that forms this foundation in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 6. It's salvation. In the King, New King James, it actually says the strength of salvation. The salvation of the Lord can help us face just about anything, but especially it helps us to face death. 
And you don't have to raise your hand, but I want you to think about it. As a Christian, when you are taught the catechism of what it means to be a Christian, you're taught, I believe in God the Father, Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit. I believe that He died, was buried. On the third day He rose. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of Father and is coming back to judge the living and the dead. I believe all of these things. If you're taught that as a Christian, why do you still fear death? Quite honestly, there should be no fear or anxiety. But even Christians still struggle with that. Yes, ma'am. That's true, it is just a separation. But the reality is there are still many, many Christians who have great anxiety and fear when it comes to the end of their life. I remember distinctly when I was in my training to be a pastor in my internship, I was called to the hospital of a 78-year-old woman who was literally in the last 5 to 10 minutes of her life on this earth. She was 78 years old, her name was Catherine, and she was scared to death to die. And I was asked to push her over the cliff as the chaplain, so to speak. And God told me to remind her of her faith and to remind her of her relationship with Him. And literally, I sang to her the Lord's Prayer as she transitioned into the next life. But what was so amazing, when I first got into that room, this woman was... (gasps) But by the time I finished... Praying with her and then singing. And she was at rest. And what made the change? It was the understanding of the salvation that she owned. Because of the relationship she had through the blood of Jesus Christ. If we know that the Lord will save us in eternity, we can better face whatever happens here on this earth. I mean, consider Paul, the apostle. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and Romans 8, he has an attitude of hope. See, the wisdom and the knowledge and the salvation found only in Jesus Christ, only in the Lord, provides this stability, this foundation that we need for our times. Wisdom and knowledge providing stability in facing life situations. Salvation providing stability to face our death. And together, we have this great wealth, this rich store. But how do we access it? What's the key to unlock that treasure chest or that vault? Well, if you look at the end of verse 6 in chapter 33 of Isaiah, it literally says the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? It's not running around scared that there's a snake in your presence and you're crazy wild. That's not what fear we're talking about here. This fear of the Lord is an awe-struck sense. A, a sense of wonder. A sense of 
Oh my God, I'm in the presence of God. It's this, wow, this recognizing that in a moment he just has to look at you and snap his finger and you're dead. But he doesn't. It's relishing being in his presence. It's just scary. (laughs) And at the same time, amazing and glorious. That's the fear that we're talking about. In Proverbs chapter 1, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Excuse me, the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 9, it says, it is fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the reality is, it even says in Acts chapter 10, to receive salvation, you have to understand that you've been accepted by God. The God of the universe loves every single one of us. The message of salvation isn't, only, isn't the only thing, though. Because in Philippians chapter 2, it says we have to work out our salvation. See, it's not just a matter of asking Jesus into your life when you're 8 years old, and then you're good. But you have to walk in this faith every single day, becoming more and more Christ-like until the time that God calls you home. That's fear of the Lord. That's what it means. So why is this fear of the Lord necessary as a key to unlock this treasure? Well, number one, Proverbs 16 says, not number one, Proverbs Proverbs 16 says, the fear of the Lord causes one to depart from doing evil. There's a reverence for God and God's righteous judgments and it becomes a motivation for you. When you depart from evil, what do you do? When you turn from evil, what are you turning toward? You're turning toward God. Now in the fear of the Lord in Proverbs 14 it says, the fear of the Lord is a strong confidence that it is a place of refuge. When we turn to God, this fear of the Lord becomes a source for us, of blessing. We do get wisdom, we do get knowledge, we do get salvation, but we also get confidence. We also get refuge. I talked about it a few weeks back, about this lee of the stone, and so that we're hidden in God. Proverbs 14 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. So this morning so far, we've looked at this idea that those who lack stability when times are troubled... Do it because they lack wisdom, knowledge, and salvation in the Lord. They're on their own. They're not Christians. They don't know anything. And they're walking around scared to death all the time. Because they have to constantly guard against any harm that could possibly come to them. On their financial front, on their health front, on on their home, and on their... That's why 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 they succumb to buying these... Hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of security equipment for their home, and they pay into the life protection, life lock protection system so that nobody steals my identity. And I also have to make sure that we are vaccinated and we have health insurance that we have because they're so worried about abstaining on everything and every front because it's all about me and I have to take care of myself and I'm the only one that's going to take care of myself. There's nobody else that's going to do it and I'm so scared. And that's the way normal humans live. And it's because they don't have 
a real fear of God and an understanding of his love and his protection and his salvation, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. A proper fear of the Lord prompts us to turn away from evil and to turn to God. And when we do that, we find this knowledge and this wisdom and the salvation, which gives us the freedom to not even be afraid of death. And all of that, that fear, that wisdom, that knowledge, all of that, that becomes the foundation by which we live. With that kind of foundation, we can literally say, as they said in Hebrews chapter 13, we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And the question for us this morning is simply this. Why won't you let the Lord provide you with the stability that you need for these troubled times? Because if you're still struggling, even as a Christian, with worry and fear and anxiety, what does that mean? That means that those are areas of your life you haven't turned over to the Lord. Right? Because if you've turned it over to God, and He lavishes His chesed on you, then you shouldn't have it. Because the Word of God in Philippians says, when you give this all to God, the peace of God comes in. There is no more anxiety or fear. So, if you as a Christian are walking around still with anxiety and fear over a particular issue, the very first thing you need to do is turn away from the evil, turn to God, get on your face before God, and give it to Him. And if the worry comes back, that means not that you didn't give it to Him the right way, and it doesn't mean that you picked it up. It's called a temptation, folks. And what do you know about temptations? God has promised you if you resist the devil, he must flee from you. Submit to the Lord. Resist the devil and he must flee. It's not a he will, he he might, he could possibly. He must. This is the word of God talking here. Anxiety is from the enemy. And if you hold on to it, you are not being a, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, How does this apply to my life? In less than 60 hours, oh my goodness, all hell is going to break loose in my country because one of the two are going to be elected president and I don't want either one of them, but oh my goodness, I got no choice. And now the financial world is going to go crashing. Wall Street's going to go crazy. There's going to be anarchy in the streets. The FBI is going to be bringing an indictment. Oh, by the way, I got a BBC report while we were having my sermon. I could kill him, saying, "Ah, oh, there's not going to be anything from the FBI over Hillary. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Ah, everything's falling apart, God. Ah. Why? Why? Let's bring it more home. It's November. We haven't got any snow yet. Tempers are going to get dark, deeper. And my well's going to freeze. My septic's going to freeze. I don't have a thousand dollars to pay big, Bigfoot thawing to come and thaw out my system. What am I going to do? You're going to get on your face before God and stop worrying about it. Really? Right? Oh God, we have to get our well taken care of because we don't have the money and we don't know where it's going to come from and we're putting our trust in somebody else to give us the money. Huh? 
Right, God? And when they tell us no tomorrow, what do we do? Oh! Really? Where's your hope? Where's your trust? Where's your faith? Do you fear the Lord? Do you submit to the Lord? Or are you walking in the, in, the, in the fear of the district assembly and district advisory board? Who's going to give us the money that we need? Really? And I don't know all the stuff you're dealing with. Whatever your stuff is, it doesn't matter. My stuff's most important. It's all about me. Hmm. Let me read to you this poem that this minister put at the end of his sermon. I love it. God has not promised skies always blue, flowers strewn pathways all our lives through. God hasn't promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. Well, the technology would work. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way. Yes, God has promised grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. Let's close our time with a sense of him being in charge and loving on him and telling him how much we do love and appreciate him.